Hey, I'm Amory Robertson. I'm your host for Read Write Geek, a podcast for writers, readers, and makers of all kinds. Welcome aboard. Episode 5 Chapter 7 The next two weeks on Iona are calm, with no additional drama and no more surprises. There are conversations with podmates at breakfast and dinner and routine maintenance activities and the occasional support call from the warehousing team. Arden is absorbed by his work and making friends across Iona, and I find I'm increasingly able to relax in his presence. Winda asks my help to plant a spring greenhouse garden, and I secretly order her some fancy homeworld tomato plants as a surprise. Hen talks me into being a test case for his new breakfast muffin recipe, and I have to admit he's turning into an excellent chef. Everyone is busy and content. Graham and I get together a few times to share meals or just to relax and look at the stars, but neither his nor Arden's past gets brought up again. I also manage to wrangle some more personal time with Fanny— We meet one evening for a late dinner and extensive girl talk in the star parlor. This time, it's Fanny's turn to tell all. A Bartizellian gentleman named Tomas, blessed with an impressive stomach and an even more impressive mustache, has energetically begun courting her, and she's as giggly as Holly when she talks about him. We make it a very late night, and I creep back into the pod hours after everyone has gone to bed with a smile on my face and a light heart and what I hope is my friend's good fortune. Today is a rest day for me, and by the time I rise, our common room has reached its peak morning chaos. Wenda and Hen are clattering around the kitchen enthusiastically. Darrow and Arden are sitting by the fireplace deep in conversation. Several of our podmates are in the process of arriving at or leaving the table. The littlest ones are playing an energetic game of tag with their mother, Char, in the courtyard. Holly is running coffee from the kitchen to everyone in the common room. Arden spots me then and smiles broadly, waving me over. I smile in response, then cross the room and join them. Darrow's been telling me about your medical mystery, he says, and for a moment I'm perplexed, conflating the present and past in my head. But then it suddenly makes sense. Oh, you mean Carloa, I say. It is somewhat mysterious. How much have you discussed? Only her current condition. I believe you may know some details I'm not privy to, Darrow says, rising from his chair. Speaking of which, I'm due at clinical. Her general case review is in a couple of hours. Faith, I know it's on your schedule. You'll be attending, won't you? Yes, I say. I believe Graham is going to be there as well, since he's the closest thing to family she has here. Good. I'll see you both this afternoon. Darrow makes a polite bow in my direction and excuses himself. Arden, beaming with excitement, gestures toward Darrow's now vacant chair, and I sit down. I have so many questions, he says, leaning forward. She's in full-on stasis? Not just extended sleep? Macha would be able to answer with more detail, but yes, she's in full-on stasis. Her body systems and processes have slowed to nearly immeasurable levels, but apparently there's no degradation and she's stable. The tricky part, which makes it significantly different from extended sleep, is that we have no options for waking her up. Darrow mentioned that. No antidote. How did that come about? Well, I think that's a question that's better suited for Graham. She was one of our Bartizel transferees, and there's a fairly elaborate backstory, but I'm not sure how much of it is supposed to be public knowledge. I see, then, or possibly imagine, a brief cloud pass over Arden's sunny expression, but it's dispelled almost instantly, and his monologue of questions continues. And the color effect is extraordinary. She's blue? Yes, she's blue, from head to toe. It's quite startling when you see her. There's no way you can be prepared for it. Blue, Arden murmurs, his focus shifting inward momentarily. I can almost hear the wheels of his mind turning. That part, at least, has not changed since I last knew him. He's yanked out of his thoughts by Polly roaring into his headset so loudly I can almost make out the words sitting across from him. 
Wincing slightly, he swings the mic down and reassures Polly that his warehousing leader has neither decided to sleep all day nor transferred to night services and will be there in short order. Clearly I have to go, he says, and stands up. One last question, though. Yes? Does he always yell like that? I'm nearly deaf now, and it's barely been a month. (laughs) I'll just say you've caught him at a good time. Once you catch him at a bad one, you will long for these days, I laugh. Arden makes a mock terrified face over his shoulder as he hurries out. I'm still sitting by the fire smiling when Wenda comes over, hands me a cup of coffee, and sits down across from me. Our podmates disperse for the day, and now we have the common room to ourselves. So you two seem to be getting on well, she says, tilting her head toward the door to clearly indicate who she's talking about. Her intonation also makes the statement less casual than its wording would suggest. We're getting along, I say. We live in the same pod, we work on the same team, we might as well, right? Have you talked? We talk all the time. Have you talked? Wenda repeats, looking levelly at me. I can't pretend I don't know what she means. No, I say, looking down. We haven't had the chance. What about Graham? Well, Graham knows I knew Arden on Homeworld, I say defensively. And? And what? And you told him everything? I sigh. No, I admit. He doesn't know the details. It it wasn't the right time. Wenda frowns and looks toward the door. You need to talk to Arden, she says. I will, but we're doing fine right now, and I don't want to... She interrupts me, her tone of voice serious. Maybe you're doing fine, she says, but I'm not sure Arden is doing fine. When you didn't show up before lights out the other night, he was very anxious. I told him you were with Fanny and would not be home for quite some time, but that didn't appease him. He was keeping watch out here after we all went to bed. He claimed it was insomnia, but I'm certain he was waiting for you. He seemed very worried, despite my assurances. He could not let it go. I blink back surprised at this reported display of concern on Arden's part. Perhaps a few of his comments suggested a lingering connection between us, but our interactions so far have been so balanced and rational, I truly believed it was my imagination. Wenda takes stock of my reaction, and her demeanor becomes more gentle. You always said he ran away and left you, she says quietly, reaching out and taking my hand in hers. I'm just saying, maybe you had it wrong. You always assumed you knew the truth, because that's what it looked like to you. Well, maybe he did what you said, but maybe he didn't. You should talk. This time, it's Graham's voice I hear in my head. I think he went through something heartbreaking and difficult before we met, and all the crazy behavior was an attempt to burn those memories out of his brain. And then Arden's voice singing, cutting through the haze of time, the days of fever and sickness, the fog of two sleepers, and the growl of an interstellar lander's engines, singing words written on brown paper covered with tiny seeds. A few hours later, I arrive at clinical for Carlo's review and find Graham waiting in the reception area, His continued consideration and engagement with her, even as she lies in stasis, makes me think I'm not a very good pod leader, at least as far as she's concerned. The pods are supposed to be a stand-in for family here, since no one is really from Iona. But I remind myself that I didn't get a chance to know her, much less befriend her, and that Graham has known Carloa since her arrival on Bardazel, so there is at least that extra layer of potential friendship. I wonder briefly if Carloa had something to do with the difficult phase in Graham's past and immediately feel like a selfish worm. If the feeling shows on my face, Graham makes no notice of it. Instead, he greets me with a warm smile and pats the seat next to him. How is she? I ask him as I sit down. Are you still visiting her every few days? A vaguely guilty expression flashes across Graham's features, and he looks down at the polished stone floor. I've pared it down to once a week, he admits. As far as I can tell, there are no changes in her from one visit to the next. I I want to be supportive, but sometimes it's depressing. 
Not only do I have no clue what the future might hold for her, I feel completely powerless to influence it. And lying there like that, she's such a powerful reminder of everything we failed to do to protect Bartizel. That wasn't your fault, I interrupt. You did what you could, but in many ways your hands were tied. And those people who drank the blue, Carloa included, ultimately they chose what they did. You can't take responsibility for that. He passes me a grateful, slightly sad smile and places his hand over mine. I take responsibility for it anyway, he says. I know it wasn't my fault, but I can't help feeling that I could have done something more. I turn my hand over and squeeze his tight, releasing it only after I hear a powerful stride coming across the lobby toward us. I look up expecting to see Matcha, but instead I see the flushed and anxious face of one of her medical assistants. Matcha sends her apologies, but the case review will have to be rescheduled, the assistant says somewhat breathlessly. There's an emergency and we're all needed on scene immediately. Before I can ask where on scene might be, he spins on his heel and runs across the lobby, joining a phalanx of medical professionals streaming down the stairs and heading out into the open air. Graham's headset goes off, followed by mine. We both rise and hurry outside after the medical team, toward the plaza. Graham looks back at me with an expression of concern as he says into his mic, We'll be right there. He reaches for my hand, and together we start to run, as Wenda's voice, straining with emotion, says in my ear, Get to the warehouse as fast as you can. There's been an accident. Polly and Arden are in trouble. The warehouse is set back from the square, tucked into a space between intake and goods distribution. Even from this distance, we can see thick smoke roiling out of a shattered window toward the back of the building on the second floor. Dozens of Ionians are rushing toward the building, only to be held back by local security personnel. Not even the medical team is allowed inside the perimeter. I spot my Bartizellian pod sister Mabry helping hold the line. I wave to get her attention and then approach the line as close as I can and call out, What happened? We aren't sure, she shouts back. Based on witness accounts, some kind of explosion. Is everyone okay? Unclear. Five reported in the building, two out now with injuries that are not life-threatening. Rescue and recovery will be going in shortly. Shortly? Why aren't they in there now? Company assets appear to be involved, so that means we have to follow company protocol. The team is suiting up and getting the structural integrity survey started. Mabry looks at me apologetically, and I remember that Arden is her pod brother as well. They'll go in as soon as they possibly can, she says. It's not enough. It's a logical answer, but it's not the one I need to hear. I turn away from Mabry and work my way back from the line, through the growing crush of anxious citizens surrounding the accident scene. Graham stands to one side, not too far from where I left him. He's intermittently listening intently to his headset and shouting into his mic. His eyes are cold and hard and his lips are drawn into a tight line. I hear him curse angrily and then snap the mic away from his mouth. In an instant, I realize we are feeling the same thing. Three people still inside, but rescue won't go in until the building is evaluated, I say. Company safety protocol. Graham scowls. I was talking to Miley from Goods, he says. She was on the first floor and got out with minor cuts and scrapes. The one still inside her on the second floor. Polly, Arden, and Bennett. He's one of the team members from Bartizal, barely 18 years old. No wonder Graham's upset. I look toward the smoke pouring unabated out of the broken-out second-floor rear window and the line of rescuers attaching sensors to the outside walls and donning protective clothing and breathing apparatus in front of the building while newly dispatched safety drones hum overhead. I catch Graham's eye. This won't do, I say, shaking my head. He understands immediately. Let's go, he says. Chapter 8 Graham follows me as I make for intake at a dead run, heading for the side courtyard door that will leave us a few feet from the rear of the warehouse. In less than two minutes, we come into the courtyard. 
The view of the warehouse seems even more dire up close than it did from the square, and I panic for a moment. The smoke is thick and noxious and hangs just above our heads, but the thought of three people trapped up there, conditions unknown, makes me push through my fear. I rush toward the fire escape that stands along the right rear corner of the building, 90 degrees from the blown-out window. Its distance from the source of the explosion is both a positive and a negative. This far away, it should be largely unaffected and intact. It does mean, however, that it will take us longer to reach our friends once we get to the second floor. I put my hands on the railing and give it a shake. It's little more than a metal ladder affixed to the exterior of the building, an almost straight-up climb to small landings at egress windows on the second and third floors, then continuing up to the roof. It appears to be intact and still firmly attached to the building, but the smoke is strangely dense and low-lying. I can barely make out the landing for the second floor, even though it's no more than 25 feet above my head, and the smoke appears to be getting thicker rather than dissipating. This smoke, I say to Graham, what do you smell? Or more to the point, what do you not smell? Anything related to burning, he replies. That smoke isn't being created by a typical fire. It's some other kind of chemical reaction. I agree. I don't know whether to think of this as good news or bad news. My feet are on the first rung of the fire ladder when there's a commotion behind us and a voice calls out, Wait! I turn to see Darrow, Macha, and Winda round the corner. We saw you run, says Darrow, panting with the exhaustion of trying to keep the pace that Graham and I set. We knew you'd do something like this. Take these, says Matcha. She holds out two respirator masks, and Darrow and Wenda each produce first aid backpacks, which they hand to us. We knew we wouldn't be able to stop you, her voice trails off. In her silence, I hear all the logical issues and concerns, but cemented with a final vote of confidence. This is dangerous, potentially foolhardy. We don't know what we're dealing with here, but we understand that you have to do it. We knew we wouldn't be able to stop you. We don't want to stop you. Thank you, I say, truly grateful. I pull on the mask she's offered me and slip on one of the packs, and Graham does the same. We take a quick last look at our friends and begin climbing up to the second floor as quickly as we can. By the time we've climbed halfway up, the smoke is hanging so thick I can hardly see the metal treads below my feet. Graham is no more than five feet below me, although he might as well be on the ground. I can't see him at all. But I hear his voice, muffled by the respirator, reassuring me and saying, Keep going, keep going, and I'm right here, I'm right behind you, almost as a form of echolocation. After what seems like a long time, the treads finally widen out into the small landing, and I feel my way along the wall to the large window intended to serve as the emergency exit. When I touch the plexi, it feels cool, further confirming that this is not a common fire we're dealing with. Graham appears alongside me. I make eye contact with him, and he nods. Together, we reach out and spring the window. It swings easily up from its casement and opens wide. We're met by a full-on torrent of dark gray smoke pouring out of the opening. I had hoped the effects of whatever happened had not reached this far corner of the warehouse and that our friends might have had a chance to gain some respite if they could make it this far. My spirits start to flag. Graham places his hand on my shoulder gently, recentering me. Let's go in, he says. Climb in. Stay low. Together we climb over the sill and, once inside, drop to our hands and knees and start crawling along the wall in the direction of the blasted-out window on the opposite side of the room. The smoke is thick, but there's some relief here at floor level, and there's no heat whatsoever. I try to be grateful that at least we won't be evacuating victims with third-degree burns. We find Bennett first, lying on his stomach on the floor. His slender frame is twisted in an unnatural way, as though he was thrown through the air like a rag doll. It's clear his left arm is broken just below the shoulder, but his eyes flutter open briefly when I touch him and call his name. You're going to be okay, Bennett. We're getting you out of here, I say as convincingly as possible. Do you know where the others are? I ask him. No response. I try again. Where are Polly and Arden? He tries to roll over, disturbing his injured arm, and promptly wails in pain and collapses again, this time into unconsciousness. 
Get him out, I say to Graham, who is close behind me. I'll keep going. We'll take him out together, Graham begins. Don't argue, I interrupt. Get him to the egress, at least. I'm going to keep searching. I carefully crawl over Bennett's still-prone form and continue along the wall, leaving Graham behind. It's still almost impossible to see through the smoke, so my other senses take over. Beneath my hands, I feel small fractured pieces of plexi, metal, and wood, like parts of a crate that's been destroyed. It probably either contained or was in proximity to whatever exploded and was blown apart. I'm also very conscious of what I hear. There's a low sizzling hiss coming from ahead and to my right, toward the center of the floor. I wonder if this is the sound of a flare or a smoke bomb, which would explain the strange behavior and quality of the smoke. And then I hear the coughing. It's ahead of me, but it's moving, traveling from where I expect the center of the room to be to further away to the right. I lift myself up on my knees, up into the dense smoke, and lift my mask and call out, Who's there? Arden? Polly? There's a pause, more coughing, and then the sound of someone moving nearer to my location. I finally hear Arden's voice say weakly, Faith, is that you? I find myself fighting back an almost overwhelming urge to weep with relief and instead manage to say in a convincing, calm tone, It's me. I'm by the outside wall. Are you all right? There's a pause, and I hear Arden exhale heavily. I'm all right enough, he says. Polly is hurt bad. Do you know where he is? He's over here. We have to get him out. I'll come to you. Keep talking. Tell me what happened. I crawl toward the sound of Arden's voice as he speaks. Uh, okay, we, we were opening a crate and something blew up. I don't know what happened. It knocked me out. I came to and there was all the smoke and I, I... <coughs> Arden stops his monologue and coughs hard. Take your time, I say. I'm nearly to you. Okay, so smoke. And, uh, Bened, Bened was here. Oh my God. We found him, I say. We got him out. I can't remember who else was here. Was Graham here? No, Graham was with me. He'll he'll be in to help soon. Okay. Arden's breathing, loud and labored, is punctuated by some intense coughing. I began to worry that he's more seriously injured than he let on. I don't know what I'll do if he loses consciousness. I have to keep him engaged. Arden? Mm? You okay? I'm almost there. Stay with me. I'm staying. Stay by Polly. I'm staying. Keep talking to me if you can. Uh... I'm here. I'm staying. I'm glad. Yeah? His voice is faltering, but the spate of coughing that follows it is enough to help direct me, and I can see him now, a couple of feet in front of me, lying on his back on the floor. There are cuts and bruises on his face. More concerningly, bright spots of blood are expanding on the front of his torn shirt. But his chest is rising and falling in a reasonable rhythm. I reach out and grab his hand, squeezing it hard. It's going to be okay, Arden. I've got you. Arden keeps his eyes closed, but he smiles in response and squeezes my hand weakly in return. I take exactly four seconds to appreciate without judgment my relief that he's alive, and then drag myself back on track. Where's Polly? I ask. Arden waves his opposite hand in the air, indicating a point past his feet. I crawl forward until I find Polly lying unconscious in a large pool of blood. His face is battered and his hands and arms appear to be shredded up past his elbows and there's a thick splinter of metal and plastic about two inches in diameter and several inches long protruding from the left side of his abdomen. Polly, Polly, I shout, but receive no response. He appears to be breathing, however slight and shallowly. The movement of his chest is ragged and irregular. Then, blessedly, I hear clattering and commotion behind us and Graham calling my name. Follow my voice, I call out. I found them. They're both in pretty bad shape, but at least Arden is conscious. I'm fine, Arden protests feebly, which fires off another flurry of coughing. 
In about 30 seconds, Graham joins us. The clattering turns out to be a lightweight emergency litter that he's put together from the first aid kit and is dragging behind him. Macha and Darrow have commandeered hover gurneys. We only need to get these two outside, he says. Bennett is already on his way to clinical. I'm encouraged by my resourceful friends who have so much faith in us. I know we're a long way from being out of the woods, but I feel my energy returning. Let's get Polly on the litter, I say. Arden, can you sit up? Can you crawl with us? I think so, Arden says, pushing himself slowly to a sitting position and peering through the smoke. Where's Polly? We're putting him on a manual litter. We're going to be pulling him over to the window. Oh, good idea, Arden says, losing the end of the phrase in violent coughing and a long, low groan. Graham gives me a look and says, I'll manage Polly. You keep an eye on that one, please. It takes a bit of effort to get Polly's large frame on the litter. Graham has to stand to effectively pull the litter to the window, so proximity to the wall is crucial, as that will be his only guide. Simultaneously, I keep encouraging Arden to crawl with me. He's clearly in pain and has lost a lot of blood. He's right on the verge of losing consciousness, but is somehow managing to hold it together. Slowly, we proceed toward the emergency egress, Graham pulling Polly in the lead, Arden and I crawling behind. We manage to reach the corner where the outer and back walls meet about 15 feet from the emergency exit when the hissing sound in the middle of the room changes pitch and gets louder. Hurry up, I shout to Graham. Something's about to happen. We can't risk the slow speed of crawling any longer. Stand up, Arden, I say. We have to hurry. As Arden braces himself against the wall and struggles to rise, I hear Graham hesitate. Get Polly out now, I say, and breathe a quick sigh of relief when I hear them start moving again. I turn my attention to Arden, who is in a half-crouch. I hook his arm across my shoulders and lift hard with my legs, pulling him awkwardly to a partially standing position. Lean on me. Let the wall support your other side. Then just start putting one foot in front of the other, I tell him, and he tries his best. He staggers forward a few steps, then collapses to his knees, dragging me down with him. His breathing is labored. His head droops. When he closes his eyes, I almost panic. Come on, Arden, stay with me, I say. His head snaps up and he struggles to stand. I get him balanced between me and the wall. This time we do better. Two steps, then three, then three more. The smoke is thicker now and the hissing is louder. I'm 100% certain this is not a good sign. But it's clear Arden is doing the best he can, and I'm not going to bail on him now. Stay with me, I say again. He convulses slightly, then leans his head against mine. His voice is so faint I can scarcely hear him when he gasps out, I will. Suddenly Arden's weight is completely taken from me by someone else. I hear Darrow's voice encouraging him to hurry, and I find Graham now holding me up, hustling me along the wall to the window so quickly my feet barely touch the floor. The sound of a hover gurney pours in from outside, and Macha's voice shouts, Clear! Then Darrow and Graham lift me out of the window and onto the landing. The smoke surrounding us is now black and significantly more dense than before, and the hiss from inside has turned into a loud, high-pitched whine. Graham and I approach the last hover gurney together. Get on, lie flat, Graham instructs, and I do. He positions his body over mine and grips both sides of the gurney hard. The auto straps draw tight around us and all kinds of warning sensors go off, telling us its weight limit has been exceeded and the gurney may not be safe. But at this point, it's the fastest way down and we have no choice but to take it. This will be tricky, hang on, Darrow says, and then shouts, clear, and guns the engine, kicking the gurney into motion and over the edge of the landing. It's not designed to fly and should only carry one person plus the driver, so I'm guessing we'll first feel a gut-wrenching drop, followed by the hover mechanism kicking in and keeping us from hitting the ground with a few feet to spare. At least, that's what I guess we would have felt, if not for the monumental explosion inside the warehouse just as we clear the landing that blows us 20 feet out from the collapsing wall and flings us all to the ground in a terrifying tumble.
Chapter 9 I'm waking up to a wonderful sensation of quiet, the kind of quiet I used to wake up to when I was a child and went camping on the beach with my parents. It was my favorite thing to do, wake up on the soft sand and listen to the world coming to all around me as the sun crept over the horizon. My mind half expects to hear my father's low, soft voice telling me it's time to get up, to feel the warm sunshine wash over my skin as the birds and bugs and other creatures begin to make their peaceful morning sounds. But of course, I'm not a little girl out camping on the beach with my parents. It comes to me slowly that I'm lying in a bed, and more slowly still that I'm lying in a bed in clinical. The light pouring over me isn't the sun. It's a medical drone tracking my vital signs. I open my eyes and stare at it for a moment, feeling an irrational sense of hostility that it dared to impersonate the sun in my dream. A voice says softly, Oh, there she is. Look who's back. A familiar pleasant face peers over the bed rail, looking into my eyes with a smile. Winda. How are you feeling? she asks, patting my hand on top of the covers. I attempt a faint smile. I'm not sure. I say, okay, I guess. I start to sit up, but my head starts pounding like a lander short of its launch pad. I abandon the effort and lie back again. Maybe not okay, I amend. You can go with okay, another voice interjects. This time it's Matcha. She comes to Winda's side and reviews some data from the drone. You got a good whack on the head when the gurney hit the ground, so you suffered a concussion, and you broke a couple of ribs because Graham is a heavy bastard, but we've already repaired those. So aside from lingering effects of the concussion and some bruising and residual soreness that you'll get to enjoy for a while, you are basically all right. Apparently satisfied, she looks away from the drone and down at me. You need more rest and some food, but you'll be ready to go home in a couple of days. I'm recommending only light duty for you for the next few weeks, though, so no heavy lifting, no climbing, no operating heavy machinery, and definitely no more flying through the air and landing on your head. I am hardly able to take this all in. My brain works to pull up memories of the day of the accident, but I only get pieces like out-of-focus snapshots. Some seem meaningful, while others are simply confusing. I don't think I remember everything, I say cautiously. This is both true and an enormous understatement. I barely remember anything, and trying to remember is making my head hurt again. It's not unusual, Macho responds patiently. You might get it all back at some point, or you might not, but it's nothing to worry about. I'm going to order some food for you tonight. You rest now, and I'll check in on you later. She bustles out of the room. Winda leans over the bed again, so I don't have to try to sit up to see her. Her expression is a mix of exhaustion and relief. She looks like she could use some rest as well. How long have I been here? I ask. The accident was three days ago. Do you remember? It's all in bits and pieces, I say. I remember going to rescue people. I remember smoke and a big explosion and... Oh, is everybody okay? Well, yes and no. Graham has a couple of bruised ribs and he broke his wrist in the gurney crash. Do you remember that? But he's in good shape otherwise. Darrow hit a piece of the gurney and wound up with a partially collapsed lung and a fractured collarbone, but he's going to be fine as well. We found somebody inside. Bennett. I say, and cringe as my mind delivers a snapshot of the horrific twist of his arm. Yes, his arm was badly mangled and Matcha had to amputate it. It will be replaced with a bioequivalent as soon as they can get one delivered, but once that's done, he'll be fine too. He asked me to thank you for getting him out of there. Wenda keeps speaking, but I hear her voice as though she's speaking through a layer of cotton. Fog is overtaking my brain now. Even the words I hear aren't really registering. You said Graham's okay? I finally ask. Yes, Graham's okay. Okay. I know there's more I want to ask, but I can't sort out what those things might be. That will have to do for now. My eyes are closing on their own. More sleep will help it all come clear, Winda says. I'll be here when you wake up.
With that, consciousness slides out from under me, and I'm gone again before she finishes speaking. The next time I come to, my mind is clearer and the memories more vivid, and all the more distressing for it. I wake up in tears, gasping in near panic. Wenda is there, as promised, and comes to my side immediately. Are you feeling all right? Should I call Matcha? She asks, clearly concerned. I shake my head no, and finally manage to gasp out the words, I remember. Oh, the concern on Wenda's face increases. Everything? I grab her hand and squeeze it hard. Polly and Arden, don't leave anything out. Are they... Are they... I start sobbing, and I can't finish. I stop to wipe my face with the back of my hand. I should get matcha, Wenda says, and tries to disentangle herself from me. She'll be able to tell you more. I don't let her get away and grab her hand again before she can move away from the bed. Tell me if they're alive, I say. I'm so terrified of the answer, it's almost impossible to get the words out of my mouth. Wenda's expression doesn't change as she squeezes my hand again, then gently withdraws her own. They are, she says but you will still want to talk to Matcha. I'll get her for you. With that, she leaves the room, and I'm alone with my miserable conjecture. They are alive. I'm glad. But for how long? What kind of condition are they in? How badly are they hurt? Were we able to reach them in time for it to make any difference at all? The tears continue to flow down my face, although I try to compose myself so I can have a reasonable exchange with Matcha. But by the time she enters the room, I'm really no better. I'm just going to have to cry and talk at the same time. Wenda tells me you've regained your memory, Matcha says, bending over me. I need to know what happened to everyone, I sob. She looks completely unfazed and makes a quick check of the drone stats. Intense emotion is a symptom of the concussion, she tells me. This means you're still in the recovery process, so I think we'll limit the amount of detail we cover at this point. For now, know that your friends are alive and stable, but have substantial healing ahead of them just as you do. And if it makes things any better at all, you should also know that if it wasn't for you, there would have been a much worse outcome for everyone involved. I want to protest and ask more questions, but Macha's stern expression makes it clear I'll get no more information from her tonight. Rest now. Talk later, she says, firm but caring, the perfect medical professional. I hear her footsteps as she leaves the room, and Wenda replaces her in my field of view. Are you hungry? Wenda asks. Mealtime was a little while ago, but I can grab the food cart. You should eat. With you here, who's feeding our pod? I ask and finally get a smile out of her. <laughs> I'm letting him fly solo, she says, her fondness for the boy shining through. He's actually ready to take over, but he's anxious about it. Having him jump in to help this way is really boosting his confidence. I finally smile also, hearing about Hen's ongoing success. Thank you for being here, I say quietly. I hope everything really is all right. Of course, Wenda says in an even tone, but I see a shadow in her eyes that worries me. I'll go track down your food. With that, she leaves again. I let out an exhausted sigh. I don't feel hungry at all, just tired and frustrated. But I think it will make Wenda feel better if I eat, so I will. I'm holding on tight to the two words Matcha left me with. I'm holding on tight to the two words Matcha left with me, alive and stable. Granted, this is not the same thing as just fine, but it will have to do. At least it seems like a reasonable place to start, and it helps to know we made a difference, even if I don't yet know how significant that difference might be. I close my eyes and can feel my mind starting to drift again when I hear the hum of an automated serving cart coming into the room. I'm about to wave it away and tell whichever clinical aide is guiding it that I'll eat later when a warm, familiar voice says, I believe the lady requested a meal, and I find myself looking up into Graham's shining gray eyes. There are some cuts and bruises on his face, and his lower lip is split, 
but otherwise he seems normal and healthy and in good spirits. You're okay, I say, feeling relief warming the pit of my stomach. You knew I was okay. I heard you ask about me right away. Repeatedly. His eyes are sparkling devilishly, and he's clearly enjoying teasing me with this. You heard that, did you? Well then, I guess I'm busted. Uh, Like your lip. He chuckles, then checks himself with a small grimace. I feel my face change from teasing to worry. He sees and squitches quickly into reassurance mode. Just bruised ribs, he said. Wasn't lucky enough to break them. Bruised is not bad enough to waste the resources on, so Matcha tells me, so I have to suck it up for a few weeks. Your wrist, though. They fixed that, right? Graham waves his left hand in the air like a flag, flexing his wrist this way and that. I see the small hospital admit chip flashing blue on the back of his hand, like my own. Yep, he says, good as new, but they're not ready to let me go home. How's your head? A little foggy, I admit. I remember almost everything now, I think, but apparently I'm still having concussion symptoms, so Macho's taking a hard line with me. So, maybe you? I look up at him, hopefully, but he shakes his head. So maybe I'll help you circumvent your doctor's orders? I don't think so. Unless... Unless what? Unless you eat. Then maybe. Graham activates the tray, and it spins out of his grasp and over my bed, slowly settling itself down over me. Little legs pop out to turn it into a standing bed tray perched above my lap. In concert, the head of the bed begins to lift, raising me to the perfect angle for eating. I look at the tray skeptically. The food doesn't look as appetizing as Wenda's. I pick up the fork and regard Graham with an arched eyebrow. Is this a bite-for-bite transaction? I ask. One bite of food for one bite of information? You're in no position to make rules, Graham responds. You eat, and I'll think about it in the meantime authoritarian. Grump. I laugh a little and scoop up a fork full of something that looks like scrambled eggs, put it in my mouth, and start chewing. It's not delicious, but it's reasonable. Graham nods his approval, and I swallow and take a second bite. By the third bite, though, my eyelids are starting to feel unreasonably heavy. Graham helps me lift a cup of water to my lips and drink some down, then takes the fork out of my hand and places it on the tray. The little legs retract, and the tray lifts up and floats gently out of the way. As it departs, the bed's angle of elevation becomes more gentle until it is almost flat. My eyes are closed, but I can feel Graham fussing over me, pulling up covers and adjusting pillows. I'm sorry, I say. I want to know everything. The words come out slow and thick. As I slip back into sleep, I hear Graham say, In time, Faith. If I'm not here when you wake up, I'll be just down the hall. Chapter 10 When I wake up again, daylight is shining through the windows, and I finally feel mostly normal. I have no idea how long I've slept, but at this point, I'm truly sick of being in bed. I try to sit up, but the drone above me flashes red and informs me that a technician is being called. Despite promises by both Graham and Winda, the room is empty except for the angry drone, which keeps repeating, Please lie down, a technician is coming to assist you, in a voice I can only interpret as vaguely hostile. I lie back but keep my body raised on one elbow in a modest show of defiance toward the drone. The technician, a young curly-haired woman named Pepper, arrives within 30 seconds and greets me with a large smile. Look at you, she says cheerfully as she begins resetting the drone and checking its readout. I think you must be feeling much better now. I am, I say. When can I get out of here? Oh, I can't say. That's up to Matcha. But everything looks good, so probably soon. I think we can turn the drone off so it will stop bugging you every time you sit up, she explains. A few taps and the drone powers down its surveillance functions and moves away from the bed, finally settling on a shelf on the other side of the room. Let's get matcha then, because I'd really like to go home, I say. The technician's face falters for a moment, although her tone retains its chirpy, cheerful tone. 
Matcha is in a meeting, but I'll make sure she comes in as soon as it's done. Can I do anything else for you? Is one of my friends out there? Can you get one of them to come in? Your friends? Winda? Graham? You know them both, right? They've been here a lot. Oh, right. The technician's face blinks out of cheerbot mode briefly, but she recovers quickly and beams at me. They're in the same meeting as Matcha, I believe, but I'll see about getting word to them that you'd like to see them ASAP. Do you want something to eat or drink? The carts will be coming around shortly. Can you tell me how Arden and Polly are doing? This time the crash is complete. Pepper's expression becomes full-on dour. Oh, no, she says, shaking her head. I can't discuss another patient's condition with you. Well, Matcha was going to, but I fell asleep before she could, I lie, smiling pleasantly. I'm sure it would be all right. The gambit does not work. Pepper's smile this time is definitely forced, but she spreads it across her features anyway and says to me as charmingly as possible, Oh, well, then it's best to let Matcha finish what she started. I wouldn't want to speak for her. Of course not. I surrender. Pepper's unquenchable cheerfulness has worn me out. I'll send the card in and you can grab a bite to eat. I'm glad you're feeling better, Pepper almost shouts at me from the doorway. Her smile is more genuine now, no doubt at the prospect of getting away from me and my inconvenient questions. I throw myself back against the pillows in annoyance. It feels like I've been lying in bed forever and I can almost taste my own frustration. But at least with the drone no longer tracking me, I can move around a bit more. I stare at the Advit chip embedded in my left hand, glowing blue. If it wasn't for that little bugger, I'd be able to sneak right out of here and go back to the pod. Hmm. I remember the admit chip on the back of Graham's hand and his promise that he was just down the hall. It might stand to reason that since we all came into clinical together, they would put us into rooms near one another. Maybe I won't have to leave the hospital to get the information I want. Maybe I won't even need to leave this floor. I sit up cautiously and swing my legs over the side of the bed, checking the drone on its shelf to make sure it's not still tracking me somehow. Silence. I smile as my feet hit the cool tile floor and I stand, taking a deep breath. I'm a little wobbly, to be sure. I have to hold onto the bed for a second until I'm stable on my feet, but that's probably from lying down for so long. I carefully pad across the room and take a look in the mirror over the wash basin, pretending to examine my own appearance while I get a cup of water from the faucet. I'm relieved to see that I don't look too horrifying. A bump on the left side of my head, a couple of fine scratches, and a little discoloration under my chin are all that even looks vaguely out of the ordinary aside from my wild, unbrushed, uncontained hair. I make an attempt to pat it down a little, a futile effort and mostly for show, and take a long sip from the cup of water I just poured. It's cool and sweet against my tongue and I drink it down quickly. As I draw another cup from the tap, I take stock of what I'm wearing a standard-issue ugly green hospital nightie that comes down to mid-calf, and a compression top, probably to help my newly fixed ribs stabilize. I convince myself I'll blend in. What could be more normal than a hospital patient walking around hospital corridors? I drink the second cup of water and walk to the doorway of my room, where I pause to listen and look for any potentially interfering perky technicians. The hallway is softly lit and quiet, diffuse light washing off its soft teal walls and floor. There are entryways to other rooms on the same side of the gently curving hallway as my own. Along the opposite side are supply lockers, an occasional conference room, and sometimes a window looking out to the courtyard below. The patient rooms are easily discernible from other types of rooms, as their entryways are covered with holographic readouts of information hovering in open space, rather than physical doors. I walk out of my room to the nearest window in a show of bravado and conviction, entirely artificial, that what I'm doing is not breaking any rules whatsoever. I'm just going for a little stroll. 
I look out onto the window, onto the little desert garden, staunchly resisting Iona's almost ceaseless wind, and count the row of windows to the ground. I'm on the third floor. I walk along the width of the window, staring out as though this courtyard is something I never noticed before. Sensing no one coming or monitoring me, I step back across the hall and began checking the readouts hovering in each patient room doorway. I know that for the most part the readouts will be far too clinical for me to absorb, but each begins with the patient name and a status, and that's what I'm after. The first two rooms beyond my own are vacant, although the readouts still contain the last name of the patient and the notation discharged. This feels like it would be a terrible invasion of privacy if I were to read on, so I skip them. The next room is occupied by someone named Bach, who, based on the coughing and sneezing I hear, must be dealing with some kind of respiratory infection. I finally come to a room labeled Thorn, with a status of ready for discharge. Bingo. Graham's room. But when I peek inside, he's nowhere to be seen. Pepper must have been right when she told me that he was at the same meeting as Mata. When I reach the next room, I feel a rush of victory. It's labeled McFarland, Polly's last name. I'm so excited that it doesn't quite register that his status is listed as unknown and I don't see the red quarantine label until I step eagerly through the doorway and set off the alert. Within seconds, there are technicians rushing up to me and pulling me away from the door. I hear Macha's voice scolding me and giving orders to take me back to my room and turn on the tracking drone until further notice. I only took one step inside, I say, and Macha gives me a look that is simultaneously angry and dismissive. As Pepper tries to hustle me along, I crane my neck to look behind me and almost regret my impetuousness. Across the room, lying in bed, I see Polly. Both of his arms have been amputated above the elbow. A pair of small discs lie over his closed eyes, and some kind of medical device is attached to his skull in the middle of his forehead. Two drones hover over him, tracking his vitals. I can only see parts of his face, along with his neck, upper chest, and shoulders, but it is enough. Polly has turned blue. Hey, thanks for listening to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying Nothing Larger Than These Stars. Check back next week for a new episode. Follow and subscribe so you don't miss a thing.